Welcome to this week's class where we begin to talk about the all-important fourth century and an event that some would say is as important as the Reformation. Before we begin this session, let's open our time in prayer. Father, uh, we recognize that we are indeed dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. And while we do not want to romanticize or give uh, our forefathers in the faith a place of prominence that only Jesus has, we also do not want to ignore uh, the decisions that they made uh, in the circumstances and in the, in, in, in the cultures that they were in, and, and as we understand how they understood you, it helps us with our understanding of Jesus. We pray that Jesus would be magnified as he is the center point of all history. Make him the center of our lives even as we study. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So, yeah, we're moving into the era of Constantine, aren't we? Yes. Um, uh, it is certainly a huge deal. I think it's on, on level with the Reformation because um, it has impacted so much from that point, not only in that era, but even today we're still yeah, feeling not, the Yeah, not just the Reformation, but today. Yeah, it's still with us. Um, so let's, why don't we go back and look at some of the historical context of Constantine, and then maybe we can look at some of the, the effects of it. Um, so at this time, Constantine is... Um, one of several emperors, actually. Um, there were, at this time in the Roman Empire, they wanted to come up with uh, a more steady succession plan so there's not a civil war after every death of, or assassination. <laughs> and laid the foundations for the civil war in, in, in this structure. It seems like every single time there was a civil war, who's going to come to power? Um, so uh, what they did is break it up into four regions, and there were four Augustuses, and with one of those being the highest Caesar. Well, Constantine was one of those Augustuses, and he took the region that included uh, Italy and Rome. Uh, so uh, eventually, you can't have peace among four equals. Someone's going to rise to the top. And uh, Constantine met uh, Maxentius in, in battle, and one of the, those battles is the Milvian Bridge. And the Milvian Bridge is really the turning point in Constantine's political career, but also for the church, too, where that uh, the night before battle, Constantine had a dream or a vision. And in this dream, um, what appeared to him was uh, you know, a symbol, the key in the row, or the chi row, as, as we may know it, which are actually the first two letters in the Greek word for Christ. And the voice that, that talked to him said, in this symbol, conquer. So what did he do? The very next day he had his soldiers paint the, the key row onto their, their shields, and, and this really took Maxentius by surprise. He got frazzled by it, and even though Constantine's forces were outnumbered, he won the day. And that, that seemed to be the, the beginning of Constantine's conversion, in quote, you know, right. quote-unquote conversion. Yeah, we don't know if Constantine was truly converted or not. If if it was, it was a long process. Almost certainly he was not converted at this time. Worship the sun god. Um, in fact, years later, you've got on the on the Roman coins uh, that this symbol, this Christian symbol, picture of Jesus on one side. You've got uh, the sun god on the other side. Uh, it was certainly... Whether it was the turning, the turning point in Constantine's life or not, likely not. It was certainly a turning point for the church. Uh, Constantine was a very tolerant man, not just for Christians, but for all people of all religions. He was wanted to uh, to to promote freedom of worship, but since he had won with the Christian God on his side, at least in his mind. And, and he continued to expand his uh, power over all of the kingdom. Eventually, when in all of the entire region that was known as the Roman Empire, the four rulers became one ruler. And we won't go into all of that. Really, I, I think what we want to think about is Constantine's impact on the church. I mean, there were a lot of good uh, 
things that came out of Constantine's victory for the church, a lot of positive things, certainly for the, for the people. Certainly. I think when we think about if anybody has taken a church history class before or know anything about Constantine, they, they think, oh, well, he, he's the one who destroyed the church. It's not been the same since then. Uh, and, well, and that's true. Yes, it's true. It's, it's, it's not, not been, been the, the same. same. <laughs> um, but there are some good aspects. And, and one of those came out of um, an edict that he made with one of the other Augustus, Licinius. And um, it was called the Edict of Milan. And uh, it, it didn't last for very long, but what it did is set the tone for what Constantine's empire would look like, that he wanted toleration for Christians. And, um, and actually what that provided for Christians was <clears throat> freedom from persecution. Persecution at that point from Decius to Diocletian under uh, Valerian and, and uh, Galerius, Galerius, I think, was, yes. was just fierce. Yes. And then all of a sudden we have a tolerant emperor who um, releases Christians from the fear of persecution. And, and what that in turn does is now uh, the state has sanctioned for the church to be able to meet openly, freely. Yes. We, can, we can invite people without fear of being turned in and, and martyred. You know, Galerius, this is sort of an aside. We're not planning to talk about this, but Galerius, five days before he died, after having persecuted the church his in, with intensity life. his whole life, uh, ordered the church to pray for him. He gave him freedom and he said, but this is the condition that you pray for the rulers. And he was saying, pray for me. It reminds me of Carl Sagan, um, who was an atheist and mocked Christians, but then he got cancer and really expressed his doubts openly about maybe I've been wrong, as, as, as did Christopher Hitchens. And, ask, and, and grateful for the prayers of Christians when they realized that they were going to meet whatever it was beyond them, and in a sense, I think of meeting their maker. Yeah. But so, but but look, if we were Christians in that day, we would be so grateful to God that no longer are uh, the uh, Christians persecuted, but also that we could assemble openly, that we could have church services openly, and that we could hammer out theology in the councils, not only. Was the state allowing bishops to get together? They were sponsoring bishops together, get together, um, and, and, and so the gospel is going forth to a lot more people than it had been before. Earlier, I might say to you, uh, Neil, let me share what's so different. Or if you said what's so different about you, or why do you meet with this group secretly? I might share the gospel with you, but I might also be concerned that you're going to turn me in. Well, now I can share openly. I can call for a neighborhood cookout and, and just say, while you're here, I've got something I want to say and share the gospel. That's a good thing. But but what, what does that do then? It, it brings in a lot of people who will pay lip service to, to the Christian faith and, and not really um, take it for their own. And, and what that does for those who give out the gospel is they're going to align it more closely with the state rather than the orthodox church. So we get a watered-down version of the gospel, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, the state has been pagan to this point. That's been the official religion of the Roman Empire has been paganism. Now it's Christianity, but it's not a clean, it's, it's not a clean switch, is it? Not, not everyone came to the altar. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and now it's, it's not so much that, oh, paganism's out, Christianity's in. Well, that's true on one level. But it's, it's a watered-down Christianity. Not just gospel, but the whole thing is in, 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 infused with paganism. So we're sort of moving from um, our, the benefits of Constantinianism to some of the drawbacks, aren't we? Yes. That um, not only can we get the gospel out, but what sort of gospel is, is going out. That... Um, uh, sort of get that sacral sense. If, if you've heard that word before, sacralism, it's the joining of, of state and church where that, that society is held together by one belief, by one religion. And so everyone wants to be part of that. You know, if, if the president or the king is, is this, well, well, so am I. That's right. Whether you understand it or believe it or not, right? And then uh, what does that do for um, the, the church, the, the gospel, is that we've got the, the syncretism is another word. We've got sacralism, yes. we've got syncretism, 
where you were talking about the pagans, people continued to be pagan. They just called it a different name, didn't they? Yes. And, it's and a mixture. We, yeah, the, the mixture is the blending, the melding together of, of different ideas into one. And, and what that does is, is bring truth and error together. And, and, and they don't mix. A, no. Well, and before Constantine, it was so clear. The gospel was so clear. And you realize, if I believe this, if I promote this, I may pay for it with my life. But I believe it is that true. Now, like you say, everybody comes along and they just kind of, they, they mix together. Well, Constantine saw the benefit of Christianity being the state religion. Um, most rulers have seen that. You've got communist countries over the last uh, century that that clearly had no state religion other than atheism and humanism. Um, but one uh, striking uh, example of, of state trying to mix religion with the state was Hitler, of all people. Uh, we know that Hitler was a godless man, but he, he saw the advantage of having the churches being under his power and his direction. Constantine no longer... Constantine didn't any more answer to bishops than the, than the men before him. Well, Hitler's not answering to bishops. Bishops are answering to him. Martin Niemöller was a Reformed pastor in Germany and part of the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church, if you've read anything, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a big part of the Confessing Church, uh, who opposed Hitler. In fact, Niemöller tried to have Hitler overthrown. And here's what he said in one of his sermons. Uh, Brian Borgman relates this to us in his sessions. He says, the gospel, this is what Niemöller said, the gospel must remain the gospel. The church must remain the church. The creed must remain the creed. Evangelical Christians must remain evangelical Christians. And we must not, for heaven's sake, make a German gospel out of the gospel, we must not, for heaven's sake, make a German church out of Christ's church. We must not, for God's sake, make German Christians out of evangelical Christians. And you could substitute the word American for German, could you not? That really ties together the theme throughout history from Constantine... To Up Hitler, to today. And now for us today, um, that, that same mentality exists. We want to mold the gospel in our Western American ideals. We want to marry church and state just like Constantine, just like Hitler did. Because and we think it would be... It would be advantageous. It's yeah, good, right? We, the gospel... The gospel, is, the kingdom is supposed to, to reign. But the kingdom of God, it's like Tertullian, isn't it? What What does... Athens have to do with Jerusalem. What does the king, what does the emperor have to do with the church? Right. I, I think about uh, the people today who want so much to elect Christian officials. Good thing? Yes and no. Yes, it's a good thing if they promote the values. Anytime we live according to God's values, we do a better we live in a better way. But when we begin to say, and this is the way everybody should think, right. it's just a short step to this is the way everybody should believe, and and then you don't believe I think it's the pure the, gospel. The, the biblical position for the church, for us, is that we can promote godly biblical values, but we should not get the mentality that uh, once we're in power, we need to wield that power for, for God because there, there's only going to be one kingdom where... Uh, the state and the church are together, and it's not going to be of our making. <laughs> no, Jesus Christ is right, King Jesus. Well, we're talking about King Jesus in our study in the Gospel of Mark, uh, and we're going to spend the rest of this class talking about uh, the, the the religious debates that went on in the 4th century, and Adam English from Campbell University is going to be joining us. Thank you for joining us for the next session of Church History Class at Grace Community Church. My name is David. I'm on staff with Grace. Uh, I am the Creative Arts Director, and I am a proud two-time graduate of Campbell University from the undergrad department and the Divinity School. It is my great privilege to to welcome Dr. Adam English from the uh, Religion and Philosophy Department at Campbell University. 
Unfortunately, I didn't have the privilege of being in class with Adam because he arrived 10 years ago right as I was finishing undergrad. Uh, But I do have the privilege of calling him a friend. Uh, Since then, he and I have had the opportunity to interact uh, over all sorts of uh, theological issues and church history issues uh, off and on over the last decade. And so I'm grateful to count him as a friend. And so it's with great pleasure that I grill him through the course of the next couple sessions on this very, very important fourth century. Uh, Brad and Neil set us up really well by explaining Constantine, the Edict of Milan, some of the impact of these things very early in the fourth century. Uh, But Pastor Brad has also said that uh, the fourth century may be just as important as the Reformation when we think about the arc of church history. So, with that in mind, uh, we'll, we'll kick things off here in 318. We are in the middle of the street with a riot around us. And it's Christians who are rioting. And they're rioting over an issue of theology. So how did we get to this point? You know, David, it is exciting that uh, Christians at this moment are taking theology so seriously that they would take to the streets uh, in its cause. Uh, you know, you've got to put yourself back in this time to think Christians in the year 318, in the, in, at the turn of the 4th century, had not yet really figured out what this marvelous revelation of the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus and his coming and uh, his death and his resurrection, and they had not yet figured all this stuff out, what it meant for them, what it means for belief. And so there's a lot of controversy about who was Jesus exactly and, and what, in what sense is Jesus equal to God or maybe a little bit less than God or a high prophet of God. Um, they had not yet resolved so many theological issues that today we take for granted, yeah. like the status of Jesus and the Trinity and things like that. Well, it's kind of interesting, and Gonzalez makes this point in the text, is that uh, as persecution ceased as a result of the Edict of Milan, uh, doctrine began to form. Uh, when the church was being persecuted, uh, they were majoring on the majors. Uh, they were mm-hmm. focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they were responding by worship. Uh, but then as persecution began to cease, and the shift happens with uh, state religion, uh, all of a sudden... They needed to really work these things out because you had all sorts of people interested in this new religion, but for different reasons than following the person and work of Jesus. And so doctrine began to develop uh, in very specific uh, ways in response to all sorts of thought that began to enter the scene. That's right. You know, doctrine really is, uh, in theology, really is uh, grammar. Um, It's grammar lessons and how we think about our faith. Uh, so nothing that, that theology can give you would replace Scripture or replace Jesus, but it helps you to speak about Jesus and speak about Scripture and interpret uh, Scripture faithfully. Uh, so uh, you know, I see theology as grammar lessons in learning how to speak Christianly hmm. about the faith. So how did we get to this point in 318 where there's a riot happening over an issue of theology? What is the issue and who is impacting these uh, these rioters. The major player here is a man named Arius, uh, who is a presbyter or preacher there in Alexandria. And Arius, uh, we typically might think of him as a bad guy, but he's really not. He is simply trying to work out the logic of the faith. He wants to preserve the perfection, the unchangeability of God. And he realizes that we call God the Father unbegotten, meaning He had no beginning. No one begat him at any point. And yet we call the Son begotten. So it seemed to him that if the Son was begotten, had a beginning at some point, uh, then in a sense he was was a little bit lesser than the unbegotten Father. So the unbegotten Father lasts from eternity. Mm -hmm. But at some point in eternity, uh, God created a Son. And in that sense, the Son is a little bit lesser than God. Uh, certainly higher than us, certainly higher than the angels, but maybe one step under the Father. And uh, this, this really is the, is the seed, is the issue here at stake. The bishop of Alexandria, um, or head pastor, a man named Alexander, uh, takes issue with this because 
he makes the observation that if uh, at some point the father decided to create a son or beget a son, then he was not always father. Right. Uh, in order to be a father, you have to have a son. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a son, then you're not technically father yet. So uh, he saw the, uh, the inconsistency in Arius' idea that yeah. if he became a father at some point, then the day before that, he was not a father. Yeah, so if Arius is saying the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God is at stake here, Alexander noticed, well, as you're saying that, you're still bringing up a change in God by uh, taking away from the Son's divinity and the Father's uh, coexistence with Him. But I'm getting ahead of myself with some of these terms that become very, very important as these things progress. So Alexander, uh, the head bishop of Alexandria, uh, which Brad and Neil have made a, uh, very clear that this is the center of thought in this time uh, in the world. And so... If any place in the world was going to wrestle with a theological issue to the point that it would lead to a riot, it would be in Alexandria. And as they are thinking about these things, Alexander and Arius, who was a very charismatic pastor, um, I could think of you know, any number of uh, examples of pastors now and with our use of technology and in this culture where they, they wield great influence, but they may not be uh, wielding great theology. Uh, they are charismatic people. They are great communicators even. Uh, but they're not, uh, they're not preaching uh, the gospel in a way that is orthodox, in a way that has uh, been worked out by those who are in authority. So is there an issue, I guess, with Arius and Alexander? Uh, Arius is not willing to submit to Alexander that's, that's his, and his leadership? Right, that's certainly a lot of it. It uh, definitely very quickly becomes an issue of power and, and like you say, submission. Um, Arius does not believe he is in heresy. In fact, he believes that his bishop, Alexander, is the one who is committing heresy. And so, again, at this point, you know, I talked about grammar rules. You really don't have any grammar rules to uh, arbitrate or to umpire this sort of thing. Arius believes he's in the right and that his bishop has fallen into heresy, while Alexander believes that Arius is in heresy. So no one has yet really arbitrated or set any kind of ground rules. I mean, this is the importance then leading towards a creed, some kind of short summary statement that would set the ground rules uh, for what we believe as Christians, somehow uh, draw out what the Scripture says at length and, and state it in one, a short statement uh, and, and set the ground rules for hey, Here is Christian talk. Here is the way we're going to refer to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and that had not been done yet. So what are some of the, uh, I guess, ways that, we could recognize Arianism uh, even today. Uh, what are ways that uh, we can see reflections of, um, of Arius' thought specifically, or even just that kind of thinking about Christ uh, that would maybe be reflective of Arianism? You know, it has been said that Arianism is a, a natural heresy. I mean, one that uh, we fall into naturally. It's sort of a common sense way of thinking about things. You have a, a father here, and then, of course, one step below, you have the son. Uh, I remember sitting um, at a diner with um, uh, my grandmother, and you know she'd been at her Baptist church her entire life and faithfully attended Sunday. And we got to talking about Jesus, and I don't know, I don't know how this exactly came about, but she started explaining how she saw Jesus. That uh, well, yes, you have God. And then, um, you know, God sends his, his messenger, who is, who is his son, uh, to do his work. Uh, but, he, but, you know, he's a little less than God. I mean, she began to articulate this, and I had wow. to stop and say, well, you know, that's actually her- heresy. I mean, that's actually Arianism. <laughs> the way that you're talking about it is the son is not quite equal to God. I mean, that was in her mind. Well, she had attended a Baptist wow. church her whole life. Uh, it happens quite naturally. We, we, we tend to differentiate God from Jesus, from the Son, in our own language. Yeah. And very quickly that turns into Aryan language, even if we don't mean it or intend it to be so. Yeah. Well, we're about to work through the book of Mark, uh, or actually and Mark already by the time this is being uh, posted uh, at Grace Community Church. And we've spent time in Matthew before as a church family, as a Pastor Brad has, has taught through the Gospels. Um, and it would seem to me that even in Mark, uh, maybe more so in John, but even in Mark that there is a... A, a relatively clear picture of Jesus' divinity. And so it's interesting to me that, um, 
that Arius would begin to read these things with this sort of subordination, uh, this hierarchy in his mind as he's looking at these things. Uh, and it seems to me that a lot of the, the heresies that still exist uh, can find their root in uh, a misunderstanding of the divinity of Jesus. It is, but you know, I would also say some of that, the source of some of that confusion uh, is, I don't want to say that confusion is there in Scripture, it's certainly not, but I can see how people would, would become confused very quickly. At some points, the Scriptures speak of the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, who has existed forever, equal with the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, but at other points, Scripture speaks about the incarnate Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, was born at a certain time and lived to a certain time um, and existed at that, you know, at that time and is no longer. Uh, and then at other points, the scriptures will speak of the resurrected Lord, the glorified uh, Lord who reigns with the Father in heaven. Uh, well, those are three different ways of speaking about this, the Son um, that we have to handle carefully. Um, and so the eternal Word of God who has always existed with the Father, the incarnate Jesus who had a lifespan here on earth, and then the resurrected Lord who is at the right hand of the Father. In a sense, all of these are the same, uh, but they are distinct in some ways. Well, I guess one of the issues in maybe in 3.18, when they're having this riot, uh, we talked briefly in the last couple sessions about canon, uh, about the canon being developed. And so in 3.18 how much of the canon would have been publicly available uh, to the church in, in this part of the world? Uh, certainly all of the major books in the New Testament and the Old Testament were already known and available. Uh, it's not until 367 that Athanasius, a, a man who's about to make an important contribution, uh, will put in its final form all uh, 27 books of the New Testament okay. in, the, in the shape that we have today. So at this point, uh, the canon or the shape of the New Testament, is still in flux, although all those books certainly would have been known by this point and, and been read, uh, but it was not clear exactly which of these are our scriptures. So you have people reading uh, New Testament scripture, but they're also reading other texts, Gnostic texts. They're getting all kinds of influences. Right. Um, so again, a lot of the ground rules that we today take for granted had not been determined there in the early 300s, which is partly why it makes it a very exciting period to study. Well, you mentioned uh, this other major player uh, that we need to, to touch on before we move forward uh, is this man named Athanasius. Uh, he plays one of the most significant roles, I mean, I'd argue, in, in church history. Uh, and so this is the first time that we see him here in the beginning of the 4th century. Uh, but he has a role through almost the entire 4th century because of virtue of when he was born and when God brings him into prominence in his roles in the church. And actually, he becomes a pastor uh, at around age 30, which was relatively young uh, for somebody in that part of the world to be wielding that kind of authority and shepherding that many people uh, in that part of the world. And also, Athanasius being born in uh, Egypt is uh, a darker-skinned man. And so he begins to be, in some cases, derogatorily referred to as the black dwarf. Uh, in some, some ways, um, when he would make his statements, it was because of the the strength of the way that he lived out his faith, the ways that he passionately communicated that uh, that swayed people and influenced people and impacted people. I think that's an important way to remember the role of a pastor is incarnational, but he wasn't just a powerful communicator and passionate speaker, but also uh, wrote and taught and carried the torch for Alexander who at this point, when we just talked about these riots happening in Alexandria, Alexander uh, passed on his uh, knowledge. He discipled Athanasius to continue uh, pushing forward and pushing against uh, Arius and the thoughts that he was seeking to propagate. Now that we've introduced all the major players, Alexander, Arius, and Athanasius, uh, we've had these riots. We've had some uh, time to think about who Jesus is, because this is the crux of the issue. Uh, the riots didn't just happen one day in a one-and-done event. Unfortunately, uh, word of this, uh, debate about this, was so impassioned that it spread 
legitimately through the empire to the extent that Constantine hears about it and realizing the role of a unified church. Uh, he, for whatever reason, probably several different influences, uh, decides to convene the first ecumenical council, meaning the first council that the whole church, the whole Catholic church, uh, and remember the definition of Catholic we're using right now, uh, the whole church would come together. And so this is pretty significant. I mean, we're not talking about mass transit available across the empire. Yes, Rome had roads, and there are plenty of ships crossing the Mediterranean. But we're talking about calling together bishops from around the known world uh, and getting them all into one place at one specific time. And so this undertaking, it, it really can't be emphasized enough how important this time is. So at this Council of Nicaea, we have these major players. Uh, what's some of the things that are, that are coming together all at once as we enter into this in 325? Well, that's right. Uh, 325, the Council of Nicaea, really is a watershed event in the life of the church. Uh, there had been already some regional councils called by Alexander, whom we had introduced in, in the last segment, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria, to try to deal with this problem of Arianism. And they had all failed. And so now here we are in June of 325. And at the emperor's own residence, Emperor Constantine's own residence, he is there in attendance. There are about 300 bishops there in attendance. Um, and it's just a little south of Constantinople, or what is today Istanbul, at this little residence there where they're all gathering. Many issues had not been resolved and, and needed to be resolved by the whole church. Uh, issues like the, the date of Easter they felt was important. Issues of like... Uh, how to ordain to the priesthood, and then certainly this issue of who is Jesus. At the very center of Christianity is Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ is Christianity, and Christianity is Jesus. So if we are uncertain about who Jesus is, you know, that's, that's a major problem. And they, everyone there certainly realized that that was a major issue to be dealt with, uh, and so they, they convened to weigh it out. And um, this is kind of the setup then for the debates that are going to happen there. What are some of the other Trinitarian heresies? Again, the word Trinity is, is just relatively recently introduced mm -hmm. here in 325. It is a, a concept that's being worked out um, and largely in these councils. And notice I said councils, plural. This is the first of many to come. But in the Council of Nicaea, uh, they're beginning to work out what it is for the Godhead to be a Trinity. Uh, but... It's responding to Arius and Arianism, but not just Arius. What are some of the other Trinitarian heresies that have begun to circulate? Well, let's get uh, maybe Arianism on the table first, and then that'll show some ways in which they're sure. handling some other controversies. Um, so there really are sort of three positions there at the council. Um, on the one hand, you have the supporters of Arius who are saying uh, that... The Son is different from the Father. Uh, really, the basic question I keep going back to that really frames the issue at Nicaea, is the Son God in the same way that the Father is God? I mean, you really have to get that question mm -hmm. to, to understand the answers. You know, is the Son God in the same way that the Father is God? Everyone that came to the council said, yes, the Son is divine, yes, the Son is God, but... Some of them were saying not quite as divine yeah. as the Father. <laughs> define and, what is is. Right. Define what God is. Like it becomes very nuanced. It does. But supremely important. Supremely I mean, important. If we think about today, uh, if we were to have this discussion, uh, uh, you know, with some other people in our community, even uh, to get to the ex this kind of extent of is Jesus God? Uh, there are some of your neighbors who may have come to your door in the last few months who would not say it in the same way that we would as confessing evangelical believers. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses would articulate a theology that is akin to Arianism in the way they understand the person of Jesus and the person of God the Father. Mm -hmm. That's right. So it really feels like we're splitting hairs here, but it, it makes essential differences. Uh, Arius and uh, in, in his camp um, finally came to say that... The Son is and the Father are 
the term they use heterousios, a different substance. The Son is a different substance from the Father. Uh, there was a time when the Son was not, and there are was different he, substances. Was he willing to say the similar substance? No, there, that was the compromise position. So some people uh, came along and said, um, on the far other side, Alexander and his, his young friend Athanasius, no, we have to say they are homoousios. They are the same substance. Yep. So to answer the question, is the Son God in the same way that the Father is God? Yes. But then there are some people there in the middle that said, you know, here are two extreme positions. One is saying, uh, is the Son God in the same way that the Father is God? No. And some people are saying, yes. Can we have like a maybe, a like, a, some, a middle compromise position? That never works. Uh, it never works. So maybe the Son is like the Father, uh, a similar substance to the Father. And these, these are sort of the three positions that are there. And everyone there at the council felt like, um, although compromise is generally the preferred way to go, in this instance, we have to be very clear about mm. the nature of the Son. You know, we can't waffle on this, and, and we certainly cannot say that the Son is not as divine as the Father, somehow less divine than the Father, not equal to the Father. Uh, and so they ended up choosing this homoousios term. Um, but maybe this gets back to your first question about whether other Trinitarian debates or other issues that are going on yeah. here. Many of the, of the participants there at the council did not like the term homoousios precisely because this Greek term had been used by Sibelius and uh, the other, some of the other Trinitarian heresies out there. Um, and so it was already a controversial term. There was some Sibelius belief that um, really there was no such thing as a trinity. You have one God, a monarch, and who has sort of three different features, three different faces, huh. uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, but there really is no trinity there. And so he used the term homoousios to describe that, uh, that strict monotheism mm. that God is one and that if there are any appearances of threeness, that's just what they are, appearances. Just appearances. So that'd be, uh, is modalism another term for and Modalism that, would be yeah, another where term. Where God has three modes, mm-hmm. uh, but is still one God. And you can kind of understand maybe that they're, they're pursuing the monotheism. They're pursuing yeah. this, uh, the, the way that God has revealed himself as one God. And mm-hmm. to, the, to the Jewish people, that was a, a key feature. But uh, I love how some of the, the, the writers that we'll touch on in the next segment uh, the Cappadocian fathers, uh, they began to explain the fact that God revealed himself as the Trinity in phases, in steps of ascent, uh, in, in ways that would be accessible and meaningful to his people. And so, yes, God is one, uh, but yes, God is also three. Mm-hmm. And that begins to be, be really hammered out in this council at Nicaea. Um, I love the fact that, well, I don't love the fact that this happened, but it's interesting to me as a musician uh, and as a, a creative arts director, thinking in terms of liturgy and worship and how we remember things, uh, Arius and his followers created a chant that uh, happened during the riots, I'm sure, but happened outside the gates of Nicaea, where people were literally chanting, there was a time when the sun was not, and like repeating this over and over again. Uh, in such a way that it would probably be pretty hypnotic and even convincing to some people who would maybe pass by. And so using uh, chant and using, maybe even there was a melody to it, using song in a way to help people remember something, uh, and in this case something they probably didn't need to remember, uh, but using those forms in that way yeah. was very interesting development in, in how uh, the medium for communicating truth. You know, I'm glad you brought it back to the, to the point of, of worship here and the point of songwriting. Uh, you know, these issues are very important for how we worship and, and how we see salvation playing out in our lives um, because the Christian gospel message is that when we see Jesus, uh, we truly see who God is. We see the fullness of God mm. and 
And that when Jesus dies on the cross and when he's raised from the dead, we are getting the full power of God's strength and salvation. Uh, Not just uh, a part of it, not just the appearance of it, not just a whisper of it, but the full thing, 100% of it, uh, that behind Jesus there is no hidden God out there, that we get the full revelation of who God is. Uh, And behind Jesus' salvation on the cross, uh, there's not anything else that we need. He has fully redeemed us on the cross. And so to, I think, to claim the full saving power of Jesus, um, we have to claim that Jesus is fully divine mm. and equal to the Father, um, not something less. So these, these issues, although they are very complex, they make all the difference in our claims as Christians. Uh, it does, again, impact what I do as a, a leader of worship and song on Sunday mornings. Uh, it impacts the ways that Pastor Brad and Sean would craft a sermon. Uh, all of the language that we use in leading God's people in response to the gospel, uh, you could rightly trace it back to things that were articulated and determined in the Council of Nicaea. So one of the results of the Council of Nicaea is the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. uh, a way of speaking about God that gives us a firm foundation uh, from which to write songs, uh, to recite, to memorize, to catechize, or to teach. Uh, so what are some of the elements of the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. that were maybe different or elaborated on from the Apostles' Creed that we talked about a few sessions ago? In the Nicene Creed, they wanted to be very clear about who the Son of God is. And so they used phrases like, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And so in all ways possible, they wanted to say, uh, this is true God from true God. This is not just um, the reflection of God, or not just the image, or the imprint, or the ghost, or whatever. I mean, that this is really of one being with the Father, is that key phrase there. Uh, And that was really the key phrase that Arius and his supporters simply could not affirm Uh, that the Son is of one being with the Father, uh, that they are united, they are the same being and substance. And so it really did identify uh, who Jesus is for us, who the Son of God is for us, 100% divine, not anything less than that. And that was important for them to get onto the table. Um, As you've mentioned, this, this is the first creed that is really voted on by the entire church and, and, and worked out as a church community. So it has a special place. All uh, denominations today, all forms of Christianity today, whether they're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or, or Baptist or uh, you know, Pentecostal or Presbyterian, uh, they will recognize this as a good statement of Christian belief, as a basic yes sort of statement. This is who we are. This is what the gospel says. That is, that is an important point. And so in some ways, if indeed Constantine was intending to unify the church uh, as at least part of his uh, motives for calling this council, then in some ways we are feeling the success of that even now because mm-hmm. all of these cross-denominational uh, perspectives would see the Nicene Creed as true and good and useful for worship and important uh, to remember and so I actually enjoyed in, in class in uh, Divinity School when uh, Dr. Harmon uh, had us memorize the Nicene Creed <laughs> as part of our class. Uh, yeah. At the time, of course, it was annoying and I didn't want to, but that's the attitude of many students. Uh, thankfully, not all the students that are taking this class. And so we've, uh, I benefited greatly on the backside of it after, after memorizing and really marinating in that language of the Nicene Creed. Uh, for I still read the benefits as I prepare songs and as we uh, respond in worship. And so through the course of the Nicene Council, we are establishing for all time, foreseeably, uh, that Jesus is divine. Uh, But Jesus is not the only person in the Trinity. Uh, We also have God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in some ways, the Holy Spirit got short shrift in the course of the the council here. But also, uh, Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And that's the picture that we get in the scripture, but 
That really wasn't completely explained in the course of this council at Nicaea. I feel a little remiss that I didn't mention this earlier uh, in these sessions, uh, but one of the benefits of having Dr. English, having Adam, uh, assist in the class is the fact that he has um, done his homework uh, in many cases. Uh, one of the first books that Adam was involved with was The Pocket History of Theology, uh, which Act 2 in that book uh, is a summary of a lot of the things we've been talking about so far, the Council of Nicaea, all the way through what we're about to discuss. But in addition to that, um, Adam wrote Theology Remixed, um, looking at different ways uh, to speak about theology in a way that would make it accessible to uh, to every believer, not just those who take the time to learn the language, but knowing how to play the game even. And so uh, look for those books um, on Amazon. But most recently, uh, Adam has published a book that's a little out of season, uh, but uh, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. And the reason that I make, mention that book now is because uh, St. Nicholas was actually a player in the Council of Nicaea. That's right. Uh, he is, his name is among the lists of those who attended at Nicaea. And so it's fairly indisputable that he was there. To the question of what did he contribute, uh, you know, not much that we have on record. We don't have uh, full records of what was said and who did what there. So that's all speculation. Uh, there is one um, story that, you know, you'll hear uh, that at one point hearing the uh, the heresy of Arius that he, he leapt up and slapped Arius in the face, you know, in defense of Christ, uh, and was thrown into prison for that. Um, I would love Santa it if Claus? That were, uh, Santa Claus. I mean, I would love it if that were true. Uh, that that is a legend from the late Middle Ages. As it turns out, um, Arius himself was probably not in attendance at this. This this oh, council really? was only for bishops, and uh, not, he was not a bishop. Not presbyters. Not presbyters. Mm. So. He had some spokesmen for him. In mm. fact, a letter of his was read at the council, but he himself was not in attendance by all accounts. So That's interesting. So I guess it, because it was June, uh, Santa didn't bring gifts either. He did not bring gifts, though, for sure. Situation. Well, unfortunately, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed were not uh, an end to the debate, the controversy, uh, and especially thinking about the fact that Arius wasn't even there, um, it's not over. So for the next, this is only 325, and if we're talking about the whole century as being as important as it is, what happened for the next 60, 80 years? Well, as you mentioned, really, Nicaea just begins the debates and the discussions. Uh, we would like to think that you know, Nicaea sets the standard and everyone falls in line with the creed. In fact, that's not the case. Uh, there are a lot of people who disagree with what has happened and a lot of people who side with Arius, and even the emperors at times uh, switch allegiances. Constantine himself ends up exiling Arius, but then recalling him and, hmm. um, and readmitting him to the church. Um, at some points, Athanasius will be exiled and thrown out uh, and then be recalled. And so uh, these are very live debates that are going on wow. um, for the next, as you say, 60 years. Uh, where it becomes, um, where, where it finally comes to the point of needing to call another council hmm. is with the teachings of a man named Apollinarius, who, again, really is, is, is an I mean, we got to think of these people not as heretics, but as honest Christians trying to interpret Scripture, uh, but getting off course in yep. some very serious ways. Yep. Apollinarius thinks he's doing nothing more than uh, expounding the teachings of Scripture and expounding uh, the Nicene Creed. Uh, yes, Jesus is 100% divine, uh, fully God. Yes, we believe that. So when He became human, when He came to us, when He entered our world as Jesus, um, could He have really become one of us? If He was 100% divine... Uh, surely he did not mingle with sin. Surely he did not, um, I don't know, somehow compromise his divinity. And so Apollinarius uh, put forth this notion that Jesus assumed a body uh, much like uh, you might find, I don't know, a, uh, 
a, a, a robot being controlled by someone in the back, much like uh, um, you know, you might fill a bag of Skittles, you know, but the Skittles are inside the bag, or, or feel, uh, fill, uh, you know, find a, a pod with peas in it. So the divinity is encased within that pod. That doesn't uh, sound like incarnation. Well, it's it's definitely not. So his his idea is popularly kind of known as God in a bod or a pea in a pod sort of notion. <laughs> that, I like the rhymes, huh? Right, the rhymes there, right? That the divinity sort of implanted itself inside of this body, sort of zipped up from the inside. I mean, we're thinking of science fiction here. That almost uh, sounds you know, Gnostic in some sense, too. Like that it does Creating a sense. false dichotomy, in the person of Jesus at least, of, of spirit and flesh, I guess? or Definitely. It, it definitely does. his humanity. But again, Apollinarius thought that he was defending the divinity of Jesus, hmm. defending the divinity of the Son of God. He, he does not mingle with sin. Rather, you know, again, as a, as a as a soul sort of zipped up inside of a body um, or a pea in a pod, yeah. uh, that, 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 that that's how he became one of us. So he was truly in a body, yes. When did his teaching begin to circulate? You know, this is after um, the, the mid-300s. Okay. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's, again, one of those explanations that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, you say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, sure, I can understand that image of maybe a remote-controlled robot or maybe mm. uh, somebody zipping themselves up inside of a suit. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, that's not the Christian teaching yeah, of I the mean, Incarnation I at think all. that this, again, is maybe one of the, the, the catalysts for uh, canon being finalized and, f- and clearly for another council being convened mm-hmm. to, to really nail these things that... Uh, these tangents that have been taken by mm-hmm. some of these teachers. I think it, it does bear mentioning that uh, communication was not nearly as instantaneous in the 4th century as it is for us. Uh, for me to respond to a theologian with whom I disagree, it takes two taps of my phone um, and then maybe speaking something into my phone to the, then be transcribed and immediately posted in response. Uh, but for... Uh, a theologian or a pastor who uh, maybe didn't have the full canon available or maybe was being led astray by the enemy and was deciding to say things that were not orthodox. Uh, for that to circulate to the extent that someone would respond to it uh, may have taken years uh, in the face of uh, how long it took to travel the roads, how big the empire was at this point. It was clearly becoming unwieldy. And then thinking in terms of history uh, the time of Rome is <laughs> is drawing nigh, the, and, in this form at least, and it's because of how vast it has become. And so as Christianity has spread to the uttermost in the empire because of uh, being so accepted by Constantine through the Edict of Milan and beyond, uh, for all of these heresies to be circulated, and thus the need for the Nicene Creed to be circulated, it would take time. It wouldn't be resolved in the space of even one year. Uh, Instead, these debates, these controversies, these exiles of both Arius and Athanasius, and then being recalled from exile, took place over the course of 60 years. Uh, And then as Apollinarius and his teaching begins to circulate, presumably from the mid-300s to up until the 380s, uh, it's in 381 that another council is called, this time in Constantinople. Uh, as if Constantine wasn't clearly vain already, uh, he names his capital city after himself, after naming his children after himself. Uh, and in Constantinople, uh, it's such a beautiful place in so many ways because of the fusion of cultures uh, and the ways that bears itself out in, in the spirit of the city, in the architecture of the city, in the design uh, it was Byzantium before it was Constantinople and is now Istanbul. And all of the cultures that have uh, collided there have left their mark. I would love to visit if you can't tell. Uh, but in Constantinople, uh, a council is called. But Athanasius, uh, continuing to, to preach and to teach uh, out of the Nicene Creed, out of the, this understanding of Christ's divinity, uh, he begins to, to impact uh, some other teachers and leaders in the area. Uh, in particular, uh, a family and their good friend. And they become known as the Cappadocian Fathers. 
for Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nasiansus, and Basil the Great, uh, and their sister, Macrina. Uh, Gregory of Nasiansus is the friend of this family, but they all teach uh, and preach in ways that explain and unpack uh, what it means for God to be a trinity. What are, the, what are some of the key features of the Cappadocians carrying on from Athanasius that lead us into the Council of Constantinople? Gregory of Nazianzus really is the one we want to pick up on for the moment. Uh, he responds directly to Apollinarius and a series of debates with him. And uh, the thing that Gregory hones in on and picks up on is that there, really what's at stake here is the question of salvation, the question of our salvation. Um, if uh, Jesus, if the Son of God did not truly become one of us, Emmanuel, God with us, then his death was not really for us. Uh, if he really did not identify with us, his death and resurrection were not for us, but maybe for I don't know what. Uh, he's not one of us. So Gregory realizes that what uh, the Son has not assumed, he has not saved. That's his phrase. What the Son has not assumed has not been healed. That whatever the Son of God did not take on on himself in body, soul, mind, flesh, that has not been redeemed. That has not been restored. So it's important for Gregory to say uh, the incarnation means that God became one of us, truly and fully, 100% human. So that whatever it means to be human, that's what Jesus was. He, he had to sleep and eat. He laughed and he cried. He could... Uh, you know, feel pain and pleasure and whatever it means to be human, uh, Jesus was that, yep. 100%. Uh, because again, Jesus, as we confess in the Christian faith, died for our sins. But if it really wasn't uh, a, a man dying there, uh, you know, then, then what, what do we make of that claim? What becomes of it? Yeah. It falls apart. And so Gregory realizes that it's very essential to say not only that Jesus uh, and the Son are 100% God, but that also 100% human, fully human as one of us. And that really becomes uh, the key issue at, at Constantinople in 381, that this new um, council that comes together, led by Gregory nonetheless, uh, who is very reticent to lead a council. He's yeah. not a man of politics or a man of action, but he's called upon uh, at that place and that time to do it, and, and he does it faithfully. And those are certainly the kinds of leaders that you would want in a situation like this that is both politically charged and theologically charged. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, again, a, a consequence of the, the state and religion being married, I guess pun intended, in such a way through the 4th century is that Gregory uh, recognized this and didn't want to play the game, but he loved... Jesus, and he loved the church. And so he responded to that call from uh, the emperor to come and to, to chair and convene that council in Constantinople. Um, I think that, again, we can trace back so much of the language that we take for granted uh, in, in theology uh, to the Cappadocians, to Athanasius, uh, speaking of God and of Jesus in these terms of being 100%, like using percentages, using these ideas, these <laughs> yeah. terms of substance yeah. and being. Um, for some of us, and especially those who've uh, been in theological education, we will, will you know, toss about these terms, but they bear so much weight. And it is so important for us to remember that. And this church history class is a blessing uh, for all of us, uh, introducing some of us to these terms for the first time reminding some of us to the, of, of the weight of these terms yet again uh, that, were, that were fought over, that were wrestled with, uh, that were uh, with, you know, with tears and sweat uh, reconciled in some cases, um, in other cases uh, forcing exile, uh, all these difficult uh, experiences rolled together uh, in these councils that occurred through the 4th century. Are there any thoughts... Uh, that you have, Adam, to conclude our time here on video, uh, maybe leading us into uh, what we'll be able to discuss on September 26th as we gather here at Grace Community Church uh, together in the sanctuary space. Uh, sure. You know, I think one thing that we could definitely tease out at that session 
you know, obviously they did not use the language of percentage, which right. I've used sort of for simplicity. Yeah. Uh, they used their own language, which was that of usia and hypostases and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, there's definitely some ways we could unpack some more of that kind of uh, detailed language. Um, they're working in the concepts of their day. And so each generation of Christians has to renegotiate these, has to come back and in their own language find out what is what does this scriptural revelation mean? What What is the Christian faith at its heart? Um, who is Jesus for us today? I think that's the challenge of every generation is it has to reinterpret and rearticulate these truths. Uh, so at these councils with these creeds, we do get grammar books as, you know, as guides to lead us forward. But it's imperative that we all take responsibility for our faith and that we come to ownership yes. of, of yes. these truths in our own lives. Um, one of the resources that I've been using uh, to prepare for these sessions, I want to make sure that uh, you're aware of, is the Christian Theology Reader. Uh, it's a, basically a, a catch-all um, by, edited by Alistair McGrath. This is an older version of that, um, but it's pretty decently thick. Uh, in the course of this book, uh, there are texts from Arius, but also from Athanasius, from Gregory of Nyssa and of Nasiansus of Basil, and then many, many, many of the names you've already heard from Neil and Brad, and many of the names you'll begin to hear in the following sessions. And so, again, if you want to understand perhaps some of these issues of language, anytime you can use the resources that Neil has posted on the Google Groups, or any of the times that you can uh, take a moment to look for some of these things, add these books to your shelf uh, to peruse at your own leisure, um, there is great benefit in spending time with uh, the original texts from uh, a lot of these church fathers um, and spending time uh, considering all that God has done to, to bring about uh, His church and in a way that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of His kingdom.